Down to Business with Bobby Kerr. Brought to you by Bank of Ireland on News Talk. Delighted to be joined by Joan Mulvihill, the digitalisation lead with Siemens, and also Declan Ralph, the retail development director with PWG Foods. That's the Spar, Mace, and Axel brands. You're very welcome to the programme, one and all. And we'll start, Declan, with you, if we may, um, with the front page of the Irish Independent, uh, which is a part of the fallout of those horrendous riots in the city last week. Uh, armed guardy on patrol at Taoiseach's home as part of the response to the Dublin mayhem. Yeah, it's. Uh, I suppose it's a sad day that there is armed guardy on the streets of Dublin and particularly um, at the uh, house and at the residence of, of our Taoiseach. Um, and, and in fact, Bobby, it's it's so um, important that that he's protected the um, the guardy there have to actually ring in every hour to make sure and confirm to the control centre that everything's okay. Wow. That's how seriously they're taking it. Um, it's it is very sad, as I said, that they're they're also going to have to patrol not just the streets and have that higher presence that we've seen out around on the streets, but also um, they're going to have to protect mosques, refugee centres. Uh, synagogues and uh, the uh, immigration protection offices as well. So there's a wide variety of, of, I suppose, locations and institutions that they believe are at risk. Not that I welcome this in any way, but does it not just put us on a par with Paris, with Rome, uh, with European cities where, it, with London, where, you know, it's it, you see armed police, I, and I find that kind of comforting to see them s- standing on Oxford Street on the basis that they're there and that they, they actually are armed. Joan? I, I was on this station, not on this show, a couple of months ago and I suggested we should arm the guards and I nearly got myself cancelled for that. But I did think even at the time, notwithstanding what's happened in the last week, that this is an inevitability that we're facing. And while it is disappointing for people to think that it's come to this, I think it is a reality. And I think it's not something so jarring. As you say, if you've travelled around Europe, it is absolutely normal to see armed guards. And as I say, this is a very serious threat. I think what's interesting and very particularly sad about all of this is the places that you have listed. Mm. And this is around a rise in far-right propaganda and it's anti-immigration and that, you know... The idea that we have to arm the guards for that reason is particularly disturbing. Yeah. We'll come back to O'Connell Street, etc. a bit later on because we have another short story in that regard. Uh, but what about Pascal Donoghue? Um, it's on the front page of the Irish Times. He's considering a bid for the top IMF position, uh, Declan. And a man who has... You know, he has some standing in Europe. He does. He yeah. has He has a big standing in Europe. I mean, he's currently obviously the head of the group of Eurozone finance ministers, even though he's not a finance minister, which yeah. is interesting. And uh, he has got a second term, if you like, as, as head of that uh, Eurogroup. Um, and was his peers unanimously uh, voted him back in for a second term, which is quite unique. And also the fact, as I said, that he, he's not actually the minister um, uh, for finance. And interestingly, our minister for finance is a member of that group. So we actually have two yeah. uh, two ministers in the Eurogroup, which is I didn't know he was a friend of, of Treasury, Secretary of the Treasury of the US, Janet Yellen. Yeah. Apparently they're big mates. Yeah. He, apparently he was in uh, New York, uh, sorry, in Washington recently, uh, this week and had dinner with her and uh, they have a very good strong uh, working relationship and uh, that sort of developed over this the, the tax rate the corporate tax rate issue when it 
when he agreed to move it up to fifteen uh, percent from the from the twelve and a half. But he's very well regarded uh, yeah. in international circles, and uh, you know the old saying: "There's no smoke without fire." So there's probably something in this, even though there's denials coming from everywhere. But yeah. Joan? I think the fact that Kristalina Georgieva, the, the incumbent IMF boss, has not yet said whether she's going to go for a second term. Incumbents do... Well, that'll tend, smoke her out, I'd say. Yeah, this yeah. will. I mean, because <laughs> incumbents do stand a really good chance of getting a second term if they've done a reasonable job. So I think yeah. that will be the biggest fly in the ointment. And of course, the other big issue arising from this is if he did decide, which mm. he has said he's wholly committed to running in the next general election, um, it does pose a problem, obviously, for Fine Gael because that is Mary Lee MacDonald's constituency also mm that uh, it would be it would be a real challenge uh, to hold on to that seat if he was not running <clears> there. Uh, very true. Uh, Declan, Irish recession in name only, <clears throat> excuse me, as multinational growth ebbs. Um, some really good analysis here from Sarah Collins uh, in today's Irish Independent uh, around yeah. the latest stats from the CSO. Yeah, and you mentioned it in your opening there. We're technically in this uh, recession, which is, you know, the sort of numbers. Four quarters of negative growth. Yeah, it's the four quarters of negative growth. Interestingly, um, the the fall was 1.9% between July and September um, of this year. That's a 6% fall compared to the same period last year. Like, that's quite significant. Year on year, yeah. And more worrying, it's also uh, in there, is a worrying piece is that they had to revise the figures from one of the previous quarters downwards. And that's what brought the technical uh, recession into play. Um, and it is uh, the article, as you said, it's a very good article by Sarah Collins. And the article goes on to say that in 2015, um, it's a far cry from 2015, when economist uh, Paul Krugman coined the term leprechaun economics to describe the ever upward sort of Plus cycle. 26% we're up to 26% we were, So yeah. we're, how the mighty fall. But I think the issue, the the interesting bit, and she does go into this level analysis, which is correct to say it, that it's not reflective of domestic performance. A huge amount of it has been driven by pharma exports, um, and pharma exports went through the roof, obviously during the pandemic and there is a right sizing to the market. I mean, we've experienced it ourselves even in Siemens, depending on what areas of manufacturing you're involved in. There was a lot of stockpiling of product. There was a lot of sales yeah. during that time. There was a spike and what we're seeing now is not an actual real decline. It's a, it's a, it's a re-leveling back um, to a kind of a market equilibrium of normal levels of growth. So that is what's driving that. And they said to look at the cleaner indicators such as employment and consumer spending, which are holding up well. And that is also echoed in the, the in the Cantillon report as well, is looking at those cleaner measures of personal spending and uh, employment rates. Yeah, and in that Cantillon piece, Declan, you know, you, they say you can read many things into economic data, but perhaps there are signs now that the domestic domestic economy is doing just fine at the moment, even as the internationally focused side is showing signs of struggling. Uh, that would be the reverse of what we've seen for the past several years. Which, yeah, yeah. Which is interesting. It's interesting, yeah, that, that it's strong. Um, there's a couple of flags, though, as well around the domestic economy. I mean, we have, we're going to talk about it, a, a shortage of um, labour. You know, that's not going to help the economy grow uh, and continue to grow. Um the fact that we are uh, so vulnerable being that sort of an open economy to what happens in the international marketplace, at some point that's going to come back in and bite us, if you like. Yeah. So it's, it's a, it is a challenge. Um, I read another article recently, Bobby, where um, our savings are now at an all-time five-year low. 
Yeah. Um, so, you know, that means that people don't have money to save. So they're spending it on their current expenditure. Two other things I'd just like to point out from both those articles. One is that the GDP uh, shrinkage uh, showing uh, stunted growth. We've shown uh, uh, sh- shrunk growth for the first time since 2012, which is yeah. a long time ago. Yeah. It's like uh, 11 years ago. Yeah. And also that <clears throat> uh, MDD, this is this other uh, measurement which the government prefer, which strips out uh, uh, foreign direct investment. Uh, that's flat uh, year on year, and it actually fell in the last quarter. So, like, there are different signs there telling us that some parts of the economy certainly aren't well. And hopefully uh, the economist Austin Hughes is right when he says the Irish economy is down but not out. Hopefully he's right. Well, I'll I'll catch up with Cliff Taylor a bit later on um, about that and get his views on it. Uh, Speaking of same said man, Cliff Taylor, I note uh, he has some interesting analysis in today's Irish Times, Joan, about... um, But I suppose it's still a fallout of what happened, those horrible scenes. But he goes deeper uh, rather than a lack of policing. It's many other things. Yeah, this is a really comprehensive review of what's going on in terms of public sector employment. Um, the Gardaí, obviously, not having enough Gardaí on the street is manifest when you have riots and stuff like that. And we, we go straight to what are the numbers there? And there's certainly a thousand, they're saying, uh, below the 15,000 target level. But he said it's just one piece of a much bigger a story which is there's a shortage of builders, doctors, nurses, social care, child care workers, planners, teachers, bus drivers, lecturers, civil servants and many others. I think what's interesting is they've compared um, the number of people working in the public sector um, to where we were before and that it's around, they said, before the financial crash, the public sector accounted for 17% of total employment and now it's closer to 14%. But this is below the European average, which is 16 But what it doesn't compare it to, which I thought was interesting, is the population. And actually, if you say, there's no ratio here for um, population growth versus public servants. So you would argue that if we had a higher population growth, that 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 percentage it needs to be of the total population you really need to be looking at and um, where the the people intensive public sector jobs are not in administration but certainly in frontline workers like RD like in the hospitals so you know it's if it's riots one day it's public it's oh. it's hospital waiting lists another it's emergency rooms people's on trolleys is another these are all this is just one piece the Gardaí is just one piece of a much bigger story and and he did say that um, obviously there needs to be significant planning so that we get value for money. It's not about racing out and hiring loads more people, yeah. but it's understanding where we deploy them uh, so that uh, better spending should mean more uh, services. And public services are are changing as everything changes. You know, they need to change with it. In other words, the public service that was adequate 15 or 20 years ago, like it, 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 you, it may need less people, but... You know, the needs of the public yeah, have changed. Have, have to be serviced. Yeah, too. Yeah. yeah, I mean, it, it has to, um, in terms of technology and even that, it, you know, opening hours of various services and so on, it needs to reflect what yeah. the population require nowadays as opposed to Absolutely. in years, in years yeah. gone by. Yeah. No, no, interesting analysis and, and uh, uh, good to see it. Um, we, we'll stay with O'Connell Street because I just thought uh, Matt Cooper's piece uh, in today's Mail um, O'Connell Street burns as planners fiddle. Um, like a good 
sort of holistic analysis of yeah. of the street. Uh, he talks about tourists, uh, operators of guidebooks, a warning of the dangers there, um, and that they that that's why the ratio. And I didn't know this is five to one. Uh, of a tourist visiting the south side as opposed to the north, north side, side. Of, yeah. of the River Liffey. I, well, I actually didn't know that. I, I didn't know that as well. It's one of the interesting um, uh, points that I had uh, highlighted as well. But, uh, you know, uh, the point he, he makes about reclaiming O'Connell Street to make it, you know, uh, uh, worthy of the main street of, of our capital city. Um, and he goes on to cite places like in Europe, like the Champs-Élysées, and so on. And um, he's making the point that it's both a failure of our imagination to develop for the future and of our desire to maintain what we once had. Um, so, it, like, to be fair, he said, some efforts have been made. We have the spire, despite what you, what you might <laughs> think of it or not, as the fellow says. And the widening of the pedestrian areas, you know, the, the, the pedestrian areas are wider. The we lost a lot of trees there. The trees, we? yeah. We've uh, got, but we've got the Lewis, you know, yeah. we've got lots of good things going on there. Um, but then some, some not so good things, lots of, of run down um, sort of outlets. But one site, I think, I think it, it's a very good point to make is the vacant site there beside where the old Carlton Cinema was. It's had many different owners over the years. The most recent, uh, it's it's now owned by uh, Hammerson, uh, who are a major British property developer. And the, all the plans keep getting rejected by the planners. I think that's why he's talking about the planners fiddling. Um, yeah. the, there's ideas come up and they're rejected. And now in the era of sort of high in, high interest rates, it's unlikely that it's going to be developed. So we, we, and, and I think that's a really valid point that we, whatever was to go in there, we've probably missed the boat on. Probably have. But can I just yeah. add, and he did, it is about the planners, but he also said here, if there hadn't been so many objections, with Sinn Féin TDs the most prominent, then perhaps work would have started when interest rates were lower. And, and you know, Mary Lou has certainly come out and is trying to capitalise on, you know, politically capitalise on what happened last week. But, you know, there is there is a lot of political stuff going on as well as planning issues, but you know objections constantly to wanting to redevelop the areas. And I think it's ta- the fact that it's taken so long for the Cleary site to be reopened. Um, and I think just to get normal footfall back up on the street is really really important. And there's been too many things, as you say, left empty for too long. Yeah. Um, I, I was in there recently at one of the things that uh, Matt talks about here, which is the uh, visitor centre, the GPO, which is a <coughs> is a great place to go and I've spend yeah. a couple of hours. Yeah. And you know, it's that it's it's more, I suppose. Um, activities like that and uh, venues like that that are required. The Leprechaun to... Museum is just off O'Connell Street as well. I have been. Yeah, but yeah. Uh, you know, uh, again, it's to it's to modernise the street relative to the changing needs. You know, and maybe. Maybe retail is only one part of it. It, it has it, to be, yeah, yeah, yeah and, it and it's an important part of it. But it has to be much more than that, I think. Yeah, you to, need... to to really give the street character at night. Uh, it needs to be safe. Yeah, it needs to be clean. All those things that would one would say, uh, you know, our national street should be. Yeah, and those that those activities during throughout the scope of the day from early morning right through to the night. <clears> that's what makes a street yeah. and an area vibrant. If it all closes down at six o'clock in the evening, well then what's yeah. going to happen? Mm. You know, we know what'll happen. But uh, that bringing it alive from, from uh, you know, right through the 24 hours of the day, really, if it's possible. Uh, Joan, moving on to a business story. Uh, the accounts for the Happy Pair Group are in uh, many of the papers this morning. Um, the uh, Irish Times saying a challenging year Happy pair post losses of 581,000. And then uh, 
Uh, the Independent has analysis saying expanding happy pair upbeat on future prospects despite a challenging year. Yeah, so they obvi- they had losses of 581,000. Um, they're obviously, the, there's multiple as- aspects to the happy pair business. So whether you know them as the as the shop in Greystones or whether you know them as the brand on in your on your super value shelf or you know them at, through their online courses, there are many facets to this business. And That's think, right. And I think the decline has come across a number of those. They were faced with inflationary issues in the production side of things, but they also saw a big down, downturn in their online courses. They were huge entertainment online courses during COVID, but people are back out living their lives now. Doing online courses like that is probably not as high on their priority list. Um, And so they really have to think about how they're going to maintain that aspect of the business or have they possibly over diversified? So they are, there's 74 people employed in the business last year. This year that has remained constant. But it's interesting what I thought in Gordon Deegan's uh, analysis at the very end. Obviously, their shareholders are manifold because they actually raise their finance through crowdfunding. Yeah. And that shows a certain amount of loyalty. But it was the last comment that amused me. 1,068 new shareholders. 1,068 new shareholders. <laughs> Bring all them along to the board meeting. So, yeah, exactly. <laughs> but what I thought was really funny, and he just left it just hanging in the air as the final line. So I'm just going to read the last couple of lines here. Mr Murphy stated that that's their finance person, that it includes six new shareholders who invested between 50 and 250,000 while the majority, 734 comprises small investors who acquired shares to the value of up to 1,000 euros. The majority of the new shareholders are female. Full stop. End of story. And I didn't really know where to go with that. I just thought that was an interesting observation and not one I've never seen anyone tell We're me about their shareholder value in yeah. gender balance before. I just thought that was interesting. Declan, uh, uh, just interesting yesterday, I was uh, delighted for about half an hour yesterday when my one of my daughters told me that she'd got me a 200 euro voucher uh, for free now, which I she was obviously going to spend yeah. uh, using my account. But... Uh, then uh, an hour later, I was told I didn't have said you, voucher. You, you're what went not. wrong? Well, there was a technical glitch, they say. They had a a, a Christmas um, a riddle, if you like, out there. And the Christmas riddle basically was, uh, I'm made of snow, but never feel the cold. And uh, just to put everyone out of their misery, the answer was a snowman. So everybody got <laughs> the answer, obviously. Uh, but then the, the technical glitch came when it didn't limit the, uh, the prizes to the first 100 uh, correct answers. There is hope, though, Bobby, for you yet. Even though the 200 euro you got is gone, any passenger who submitted the correct answer is going into a raffle with a prize fund of €20,000 worth of vouchers. So you might get a tenner or a fiver out of that. No such thing as bad publicity. There you go. Uh, Joan, um, an in, a really nice piece, I thought, and an honest analysis uh, by John Marr uh, in today's Independent about three iconic creative geniuses, uh, three iconic classic uh, creative Irish souls gone in the space of six months. Rest in peace, Shane, Sinead and Christy. I'd hoped you wouldn't come to me in case I cry. <laughs> I have already cried this week. I said how well Shane McGowan couldn't have died in July. So now we're guaranteed to be crying for the whole of Christmas as we hear fairy tale of New York everywhere. Um, one of the first things that grabbed me about this story was the images they had used at the top. Sinead O'Connor, Shane McGowan and Christy Dignam all in their youth, all looking yeah. fresh and innocent and creative, you know, just like beautiful people. And and it's lovely to see them presented like that. I think there are so many images that have been used that show them at, at the height of their troubles rather than at the height of, 
their optimistic, creative, yeah. peaceful souls that they were. And obviously very sensitive souls. And yes, it does talk about... Um, it's just it's just a really rounded piece. I know there was a lot of criticism of the the Guardian um, uh, obituaries that were written about Sinead O'Connor back in the de- earlier in the year. Well, well I, I think to be fair to John Marr here, he, he says one has to tread carefully yes. here, and he does say as well that none of this should be taken as criticism. Exactly. And and I, again, I I I. I that's, I think the article reflects that. It's, it's an article that is based for me, it comes from a place of understanding, yeah. from a place of compassion and a, and a sense of lost opportunity that people, that these people were taken and that if, you know, were overtaken by their, by the challenges that they had faced in life, whether through his addiction or mental health and how almost in a little way we have been deprived by some of the wonderful things that they could have created if they had not just gone past that tipping point from it being a challenge that, that drove their creativity to one that ultimately destroyed them. Yeah. And I think it's a really balanced and lovely review of three of them and three people who, you know, I suppose for me... I, and you know, gave us so much. They gave yeah. us so much. And I think, you know, it has been mentioned about, you know, how they were really representative of the Irish abroad. I think for me, I lived in London, you know, in the mid-90s. I was in, you know, a bar at Christmas time singing Fairy Tale of New York. And it was that real sense of being Irish away. And I think that's... It, it, it's just a beautiful, it's a really well-written piece. It's lovely. Declan, I leave the last word to you. Uh, it could be used. Uh, Dubliners top the Euro Millions League. Yep. Some interesting analysis here uh, on uh, our lotto stats, I suppose, geographically. They, absolutely, yeah. Um, well, Dublin is the luckiest place. 20 winners of the Euro Millions, followed by six in Cork and five in Waterford. Uh, seven other, 17 other counties have had winners. Um, there's a few counties where you're, if you're in there, you're in, out of luck. Joan has He's no He's looking hope. at me going, I'm Joan, never going to win. Joan from Westmead <laughs> is never going to win. Um, I'd say they've won up in Cavan, but just haven't told us. Maybe, <laughs> keep it quiet. And also then, if you go into it in a little bit more detail, because you, you would expect more winners in Dublin. That, that's where the population is, right? Um, but if you go in and, and look at the sort of uh, each county where people have won above 100,000, the luckiest county in Ireland is Mayo. At least they have that because they don't win the All-Ireland. <laughs> On that note, we'll leave it there. Thanks for a great review uh, of the week. Uh, Declan Ralph from BWG Foods. Uh, Joan from Siemens, thank you for joining us. Down to Business with Bobby Kerr. Brought to you by Bank of Ireland. Saturday morning at 11 on News Talk.